Hey everyone, and welcome to Fluid Conversations, a new podcast sponsored by the National Science Foundation, or for the people in the know, the NSF. There are millions of podcasts out there, so I thought that having a new one was a great idea. What's different about this one? Not a lot, except that I'm going to talk to people conducting research sponsored by the NSF and allow them to tell you what they're doing with your tax money, if you live in the United States, of course. We will have candid conversations so that we can get to know who these people are, what they do, how they do it, and more importantly, why all this matters to you. Okay, let's talk about science without getting bored out of our minds. Hello everyone and welcome to our second episode of Fluid Conversations. I'm coming to you from State College, Pennsylvania, also known as Happy Valley, home of the Penn State University. I am your host, uh, Dr. Vladimir Ramos Alvarado. If you listen to our first episode, and uh, who am I kidding? Nobody listened to this thing. I'm talking to our four listeners. Uh, so I am that tenure mechanical engineering professor with a Russian name and a super Hispanic last name. You know, what can I tell you? Times were different when I was born and your communist party affiliated father could name you whatever he wanted. So times were different. Uh, coming from down south near the border, close to my home country, is Dr. Chris Combs. And just like me, he's not one of those useful doctors who saves lives every day. He just stayed longer in school and wants to be called a doctor. How is it going, Chris? Yeah, going great. Thanks for having me, Vladimir. Do you agree with that description? Is that a fair description of us? Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so Chris is an associate professor, meaning that he got tenured at the University of Texas at San Antonio. How does it feel, Chris? Hey, it feels good. It's this weird anticlimactic process, but uh, yeah, I'll take it. It's a nice feeling for sure. Right. Uh, we're going to get to that at some point during our conversation. So nobody, not everybody, under, not everybody really understands what tenure is. And I don't know if you have uh, heard in the news that some people are going against tenure. They want to get rid of tenure in some states for public universities. Uh, have you heard of that? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's something we've talked about here in, in Texas some because the legislation is weird. I mean, I... I don't know how much detail you want to spend on this. Oh my gosh, that's interesting. We can get I to mean, that by the end of the uh, our conversation, if if you agree. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, we can we can circle back to that whenever you want. Absolutely, let's do it. Have you ever participated in a podcast? Yeah, yeah, I've been on several. There was like a, I've been on some airplane podcasts uh -huh. actually, and so yeah, I've done a few of these. I did the Hermes podcast. Right. Uh, so I hung out with those guys down in Atlanta. So yeah, I've, I've done a couple of these before. Cool, man. So have you ever been in a studio with real podcast uh, recording equipment? Um, I mean, I don't. Here's the thing. I don't know if you would consider the Hermia setup a studio or not. It's a nice <laughs> setup. They had actual equipment, but right. you're you're kind of up on a canopy on right. their sort of uh, you know industrial setup. I um, see. So it's not like in a studio box, but they did have a pretty nice podcasting setup. Nice, nice. Do you listen to any podcasts? Um, I listen to like some sports stuff. So right, um, because all right, like I, between you and me, uh huh, I get, I get way too much like science. Yeah. In, the 80 hours a week that we work on our job. And so <laughs> I'm actually, you know, having downtime. Right. I'm not a big 
a science podcast person, I'm like going to turn my brain off and think about football or something. Um, and so, yeah, I listen to like sports podcasts. I'm from Kentucky and so I'm like a big Kentucky sports fan. And so I, I like listen to stuff about those teams. Um, nice. yeah. So, but very rarely am I going to like do a, um, you know, like a, like a technical podcast. Right. Good. Yeah. Good for you, man. So that's yeah. not, that's not what we're trying to do here, by the way, we, we're going to spice it up with some science and, um, there we go. right. Uh, but yeah, I agree. I, I love listening to comedy podcasts. As, as you were saying, I like to get out of this, uh, research world for a little while and I mm -hmm. just want to laugh. You know, right. I just want to laugh. Well, I'm sorry for disappointing you with what's about to happen in this podcast, but uh, hey, we're trying, okay? We're trying. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so how's San Antonio, man? It's good. I mean, it's hot as hell, man. Yeah. It's been, it's been a brutal summer, even by San Antonio standards. Um, but it is, it's been a great place. And I love the school. Uh, we didn't have an aerospace program when I got here, so we've been uh -huh. able to build that from the ground up, which has been really fulfilling. It's a neat aerospace community down here with like yeah. a lot of heritage and aerospace companies. And we're close to a lot of space stuff, like between SpaceX and NASA Johnson and Blue Origin and Firefly. Um, like there's a lot of stuff pretty close. Uh, right. So it's a, it's a good spot to be for some of that um and and it is yeah like it's a big city it's a cool city there's a lot of stuff to do uh so and you know i've got little kids and so there's six flags and sea world and all that kind of stuff so yeah it's fun wonderful man wonderful yeah i heard the temperatures were in the high hundreds uh, for several yeah, days nuts yeah that, yeah so we had like a I think it's the most days above 100. Yeah, ever yeah, above 100. Man, that's that's crazy. Uh, yeah. Uh, crazy thing. My father's name was Antonio. So similar to your your place, right? So just in case you were wondering if Texas ever belonged to Mexico. Yeah, you, you have a... You right. Know, well, I mean, we got the Alamo and everything, right? There's right. Yeah. Right. I, I'm guessing that you're very uh, informed about the Texas, Mexico, U.S. history. Yeah, it's a it's a weird time that like I feel like outside of Texas, not a lot of people know about. But yeah, it's there's some fascinating, weird history there for sure. Wonderful, wonderful. So let's get into the uh, subject matter. And again, a message for all of you listening, if you are even listening. So if this is your first time, uh, Fluid Conversations is a podcast sponsored by the National Science Foundation in the form of the broader impact activities of one of my research projects. What does that mean, right? What what does it all mean? So in addition to doing research with the taxpayers' money, my money included in there, we as researchers need to perform activities which can vary uh, from going into the classroom and doing something new to going to high schools and involving students in research or, you know, creating a podcast that nobody's listening to. Uh, we need to create, create, you need to create um, awareness of research and outreach to the general public. So in my case, I decided to talk to people sponsored by the Fluid Dynamics Program at the National Science Foundation and bring some accountability to the taxpayers. So hopefully, uh, Chris, you brought your books and everything is in order. Yeah, right. Wonderful. All right. All right. So yeah, we're going to count penny by penny of the money that you have taken from the taxpayers. Sounds good? <laughs> That sounds great. All right, man. All right. Um, yeah, so uh, 
let's let's go into the first section of the podcast the podcast so everything is going to be the same for all guests let's get to know our guest okay so chris comes who are you are, are you a family guy you just mentioned you have kids are you a family guy uh, could you yeah. please elaborate or um say something about what do you currently do where do you live family situation hobbies favorite foods or something like that yeah sure so like i said i mean i uh I'm I'm down here in San Antonio. I actually I grew up in in Kentucky, but then I got my PhD at UT Austin. Uh -huh. So like, I, I met my wife at, at UT, and uh, so we're like became Texas people basically. I got this faculty job at, at UTSA uh -huh. down the road, um, and yeah, I got two little kids, three and six. Nice. They're a blast. They're like way more work than the <laughs> faculty job for sure. Um, <laughs> I come into the office and relax, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, but yeah, they're great. So I, you know, I spend a lot of downtime just chasing them around or uh -huh. making sure they don't set the house on fire or whatever. Right. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, I, I enjoy the taco scene down here and uh, we go get barbecue and, uh, you know, because Texas barbecue is a whole thing. Yeah. We've got an engineering barbecue cook-off that I judge for in October. So what? I like... What? Wait, wait, wait. So, so yeah, did you... Did awesome. You, did you have to yeah. judge for a barbecue contest or something? Yes. Yes. Oh, poor you. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's, it's great. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, like, I'm a big sports guy. So uh -huh. I actually played... Uh, pick up basketball at the rec center with students sometimes and uh like you know go run work out and play uh i used to play like baseball and then that turned into kind of beer league softball and now i don't i don't know i haven't found time for that lately since the tenure track job but yeah that that's kind of like my my sort of stuff that i'm into oh my gosh so you're an athlete Yeah, yeah. I so I played baseball in undergrad actually. Wow. Um, at the University of Evansville, I wasn't very good, but I was on the team. And then it, that leads to like a lot of you know doing the fluids homework on the bus and stuff like that. It was the time. <laughs> That's funny. All right. So, so the food situation in San Antonio is great, right? All oh, uh, Mexican oh, yeah, awesome food scene for sure. Yeah, international kinds of food. So right, it's very multicultural because you've got this like interesting mix of there's, I mean, there's Tex-Mex, but then there's more traditional Mexican, which mm -hmm. is very different for people that don't like understand. And then then there's the whole like. There were a bunch of um, like European immigrants and like Polish immigrants that came into San Antonio area and like the Texas Hill Country uh -huh. ages ago, uh, and they brought with them. That's where like some of the barbecue heritage comes from, and like smoked sausage and brisket. Really, uh, and have these things at donut shops called kolaches. Uh, that it, it's like a you take a donut, but it's savory, and so you put there's like meat and cheese and stuff stuff inside. So yeah, there's a lot of neat, interesting foods from all over the place for sure. Oh my uh, god! Anytime you got a big city like this, you get some of that, right? Right. Yeah, I had that opportunity when I lived in Atlanta, Georgia, for five years. That that was yeah. different, man. What what that was a that was a trip of a, uh, experience living there. Yeah. So when we have visitors, there's like never a shortage of places to take them to like get get some fun food to eat for sure. I guess that when you came to Penn State, they took you to the creamery, and that was it. 
they they talked about the creamery the whole time and then nobody ever took me like oh I don't know man I didn't work that into the to the schedule so i missed the creamery we yeah. did go to a really good sushi place across from campus <laughs> uh, that and so that was nice and then there was like uh we, we hit up a couple of the bars around town yeah um so like it was still i definitely ate well but yeah i kept hearing about the creamery and then we never did it oh my gosh you missed I'll have everything to come back i guess yeah of course of course yeah uh, all right chris tell us something about the origin story what led you into being who you are right now so you uh tell us about the place where you were born well all right so i was born in kentucky uh-huh um, not a big aerospace industry place right uh -huh. but i mean i'm sitting here in my office and looking at a star trek poster i've got on the wall yeah and it's like i mean i was probably five or six uh-huh my dad had all these old betamax tapes like no one listening probably knows what betamax is but it was like right the there was a fight between Betamax and VHS when you had cassette tapes. Yeah. And VHS won. But um, for whatever reason, my dad had all these Betamax of the original series Star Trek. Uh-huh. And just like a big pile. And I started getting into those. Um, and so I was a big Star Trek kid oh growing up. Oh, my and God. I always wanted to, like, make. And, so, and then it turned into, like, I was making Lego spaceships. Um And so I was always into that kind of stuff, uh, you know, got inspired by like Apollo 13 movie, Tom Hanks and, uh, you know, that crowd. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, I was always just very much like I wanted to do one to build airplanes and rockets and space stuff. Uh, and that's kind of what got me into it. And then I ended up doing mechanical engineering for undergrad, but it was really just because people told me and this was true it's more uh it's kind of more gives you more opportunities big picture than an aerospace degree because uh -huh. mechanically you can still do aerospace but there's other stuff you can do if that you know it gives you more job opportunities right right but then by the time i started looking at grad school i was like i've wanted to do aerospace this whole time like i, I might as well go for it and so that's that's what put me on the that's when i finally like buckled down and went on the aerospace track Because it was like I took fluid mechanics as an undergrad, uh -huh. and it was like that was my probably my favorite class as an undergrad student. Really? Like, Interesting. Yeah, yeah, I loved it. I had a really great professor, um, and Phil Phil Gerhardt, and he actually he there's a book that uh, is used in a lot of fluid mechanics classes that he's one of the authors, um, and so he yeah that was like that was a great class and that kind of sealed it for me i was like this is the stuff i'm interested in um and but but yeah it all started with star trek interesting man so star trek as a kid because that had some betamax <laughs> yeah right <laughs> so, like all the old ones he had recorded on tv yeah oh my gosh so are we talking about recordings in the 80s or something like this he, that's when he must have done it yeah yeah Oh my God, that's incredible. So, and yeah. by, by the way, is dad an engineer? Is mom an engineer? What do they do? No, no. No, so like my, I mean, my mom was a, um, was in academia, uh -huh. but she did education. So she was like an, she, education in the sense that she taught um, teachers. Uh, right. And it was kind of like the, the, 
the science of education almost. Right. And, yeah. Um, BL, like my dad was, uh, worked in like sales, uh-huh. uh, his whole career and did like, uh, you know, advertising work for TV stations. So he wasn't, uh, yeah, neither one of them were like engineering technical people right. necessarily. Um, but, and so like educated, I definitely wasn't first gen, right? Like right. my mom had a PhD, uh, but, but yeah, I kind of like ran with that technical stuff and I had a great experience in high school physics and chemistry, right. Uh, getting to like really explore things. And I was always math kind of came naturally to me when I was, uh, you know, when I got into school, so it all, everything always kind of clicked like that. Oh. Uh, and just, but yeah, I mean, it does, it goes back to like watching a bunch of sci-fi and uh-huh. building stuff with Legos. Right. So that's the inspiration. Interesting. So from Legos to uh, following sci-fi and then in school, um, uh, you liked math and physics uh, through all education levels, I'm guessing. Were you? Yeah, it was like I remember we did we did like an egg drop thing. Uh, yeah. Where, I don't know if you ever did that in school. Yeah. We like got to the top of the football stadium and you had to build a little thing to keep the egg safe. Um, and we figured out like the crumple. Uh, we took a bunch of pieces of paper and like made them so that they would crunch when it made impact and then like put a cage of popsicle sticks that were going to break. And so it was, yeah, it, we kind of designed it like they designed cars uh, and we dropped the thing and then the whole assembly like crumpled and exploded, but the egg survived. Like it dissipated all the energy to all the other stuff, which was kind of what it was supposed to do. Um, so stuff like that was always just, I had a lot of fun with it. Right. Um, and yeah. that, that kind of put me on this track. Interesting. And then uh, uh, at this stage, when you're in school, and then many people ask and wonder, do you have to be a straight A student to succeed in what you're doing right now or to keep inspiring you? What do you think? No, I mean, I don't think so. Yeah. The thing I tell people is like, I mean, you have to get good enough grades Mm -hmm. and you need to do well enough in your courses where you understand and can conceptualize the content. Right. But I, yeah, you shouldn't be too hung up on GPA, like mm-hmm. just to the point where there are certain opportunities and doors that will close if a GPA is low. Mm-hmm. But those are it's those are the type of barriers that I worry about for people more so than the GPA being a measure of your aptitude. Right. The other thing I t- and like we have a great undergraduate student population here. A lot of first gen students. One thing that's really, really cool is I don't know about you, but when I was an undergrad, I had no concept of doing research that didn't even, that didn't, wasn't something that I thought about at all until I was a grad student. Right. Um, But I have like freshmen coming in wanting to work in my lab, Mm -hmm. uh, which is awesome. But the thing I always tell people is I want to know their GPA because not because it's going to tell me if they're smart enough or hardworking enough to be in the lab. Uh It's just going to tell me if they have time, like, Mm. because at the end of the day, if you're an undergrad, you got to graduate. Like that's the most important thing. And the doing lab work is kind of an extracurricular. Right. Um, And if somebody comes in with a low GPA, I'm like, I don't think it's a good idea for you to spend a bunch of extra time in the lab. Like I want you to, 
make sure you're doing well enough in your classes that you graduate. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you're kind of past that hurdle, it's like, yeah, if you've got 10 hours a week to burn Mm -hmm. and it's not going to impact your ability to graduate on time or pass all your classes, then yeah, sure. Come on in. Um, So yeah, I think it's the type of thing where I I don't want to say GPA doesn't matter because sometimes there are other systems that, you know, barriers that will pop up if your GPA drops below certain levels. Mm -hmm. It can be helpful to have a high GPA right. in terms of advancement in some ways, but I don't. People shouldn't feel judged by their GPA or feel like it's a reflection of how smart they are. Agree. Uh, agree. Completely. I agree. also tell a lot of people that, you know, it can actually be a really positive story in like a job interview or something. If mm-hmm. everyone's entitled to a, a bad year, and that's a really common thing that we see is especially with like COVID, right? Like mm-hmm. people, and there was a, a semester or a year where the classes were online and stuff just didn't click um, and all their grades. It's just like an outlier year semester, but then you'll see them, they, then they're getting all A's and B's at, in their senior year. And you can say, that's actually a really good narrative to take with you in a job interview. It's like, look, I went through some tough times, but then I came out of it. I learned how to study better and learn and got my stuff together. and finished really strong. So you can take that kind of things like that and make it a positive too. Right, right. All right. All right, Chris, let me take you back to the uh, senior year of high school. You're taking your classes, uh, probably AP classes, I'm guessing, in math and physics. I mean, so we had a weird setup where the school I went to didn't offer many AP classes, but we were able to take classes at a university that was like within walking distance. Uh Uh, So I wasn't doing AP, but I was actually taking like college calculus oh my gosh so that's that's big and that helps a lot all right so let's uh, let's go back to those years it's the time to apply for college how does that happen well okay so i had this other circumstance that i was wanting to play baseball somewhere Uh uh-huh so that was a factor like the things i knew i knew that i wanted to be far enough away from home where my parents weren't going to just like show up whenever they wanted. Right. Um, there was going to be some level of communication and warning that I would have before uh-huh. they actually were like at my dorm room. Uh, so it, there needed to be like a two plus hour radius away from where I live. That was the first thing. <laughs> um, I was looking for a place I could play baseball uh-huh. um, and looking for a place that had a accredited like an ABET mechanical engineering school. Okay, that's uh, important. That's important. Seemed like a good fit, right? Yes. yes so it yes. was kind of those were the boxes I was looking to check. Um and then and yeah, so I applied to a handful of places. Uh there were some smaller schools that like had good engineering. Uh and I would have played baseball, but like maybe the tuition was insane. Mm. Some other smaller schools were like, they would have given me a scholarship and I would have played baseball, but they didn't really have engineering. Um, and then, but where I ended up landing was the University of Evansville, which wasn't even on my radar necessarily. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, but we were, we were actually, we'd visited Rose Holman, which is a pretty good, like really strong engineering school. People haven't heard of it. Oh my uh, gosh. Indiana. And so we were driving back from there and Evansville was on the way. And my dad was basically like, 
let's pull off the road and stop here. And I was pretty annoyed. Like I was just ready to get home. But <laughs> it ended up being a really good visit. And they gave us a really, like I had a high ACT score. Uh-huh. And so they were going to give me like a really good financial aid package. And there was an opportunity to like walk on to the baseball team. Right. So it, that ended that like kind of shot up my list and ended up where I was going. So, yeah, I mean, I, what I tell people is like, keep your options open. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't, and and don't worry too much about like I, I think sometimes it's easy as a student when you're applying for schools to look at like basically how good the football team is or how big the band is. <laughs> that's not necessarily gonna be the right fit for you. Like there's a lot more that goes into it that matters. Uh and and kind of think about as much as you can the the full picture and don't and also consider that like, okay, the ABET accreditation matters a lot. Right. But sometimes there are places where maybe it's even a highly ranked school, mm-hmm. but the circumstances are such that like all your classes are going to be taught by grad students and you're never going to see any actual faculty ah. because they're all doing stuff with their grad students and worried about research. And so right, there, right. there's a whole bunch of other things like that to think about too, like actually right. thinking about what the learning environment is going to be, how big are the classes going to be, what are even like how nice are the buildings, right? Like there's some really highly ranked schools that I've been to and then all the buildings are like 100 years old and the AC doesn't work and right? So there's some stuff like that to think about too. Okay, Chris, stop talking about Penn State, okay? Uh, all right, moving on. <laughs> all right, moving on. All right, so you're in college, you fall in love with fluid mechanics, uh, there's a spark in you. What happened after? Well, I, so I did some internships and this was, all right, we got to put some context here. Yeah. This was like 2007, 2008. Okay. And for people that weren't around then or, you know, our younger audience, there, this was not a good time to be doing a job search. Like the economy collapsed. Mm -hmm. Um, Even internships were getting canceled. Yep. Um, So there, that was, that was part of it. I did do some internships, but they weren't particularly fulfilling. Like I worked at a steel plant. Uh, it was sort of, you know, I was going, I was doing CAD drawings and then something would break on the factory line and we would go out there and inspect it. And it was kind of, oh, this bearing needs to have a higher uh, factor safety. Let's make it 10% bigger. And then we'd make a new drawing and send it to the shop. Right. Like Mm -hmm. that was kind of day to day. Uh, I, I was like, I don't want to do that (laughs) my life. Right. And I saw a bunch of other like mechanical engineering jobs that were similar, like people getting jobs in power plants and like not to take away from people that have that career, right? There's nothing wrong with it. But it just yep. I I was the Star Trek kid, right? I was, right. I was to build the enterprise. Yeah. So uh I started talking to some of my mentors at Evansville, and they were like, You've got good grades, you should apply to grad school, and uh, we can tell like that's what you're really gonna want. And they were right uh so i i applied to a bunch of schools ended up at uc austin really fell in love with austin because that was such a fun place to be uh and 
and yeah so that but it really did it came down to a combination of the job market was terrible mm -hmm. and i had the aptitude and an opportunity for grad school yep that i felt like i kind of felt like i had a rare opportunity put in front of me and i was going to regret it if i didn't take it mm -hmm. um, and it also kind of felt like it was going to put me in position to have the type of career that was going to be more fulfilling in the end for me. right right so i think it ultimately was the right choice but that, those were some of the factors that kind of put me there you know that's what that's something that a mentor of mine once told me it's not just enough to have the skills to have the aptitudes to uh love what you do what what you're trying to do but to have the opportunity you know, having that combination uh, right. that everything aligns and it just happens, it, you know, it's sometimes it's a, it's a little spark of luck, but in addition right. to that, you need to bring something to the table, which is... Exactly. Uh, yeah. I almost felt sort of like a cosmic obligation to see. Right, right. Because I was like, not a lot of people get this chance. Mm -hmm. And if I pass that up, like, who would I be to pass that up? Right. Um, so there, like, I kind of felt, yeah, like it, it was something that I sort of, it, not just wanted to do, but something that I should do. Right. And a mechanical engineering degree, a PhD from UTA Austin. It ain't too shabby, man. That's, that's awesome. All right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely worked out. Right. So grad school, you're there, you're doing your research. And then what are your options? What do you want to do with your life? I did. I knew for sure I didn't want to go into academia. Wow. Like, yeah. <laughs> that was like the one thing I knew I wasn't going to do. Yeah. Was academia. And I liked lab work. Uh, so I was on a NASA fellowship at UT. I was mm -hmm. looking at maybe opportunities at NASA. Yep. Um, turned like the timing kind of just wasn't right for they had actually just hired one of my lab mates that graduated the year before uh -huh. the group that I was with. So it was like, well, that he kind of snaked my spot. <laughs> Great guy. I still and love all those people. But yeah, it, yeah it's like timing sometimes with uh, those jobs is tricky. Mm -hmm. And so I had, um, there were some industry jobs that would have been cool. But then there was this interesting opportunity that popped up at the University of Tennessee where there was a guy that had just gotten um, had been brought in as a full professor and he had a big startup package and was looking to hire a research assistant professor. And I had no idea what that title actually meant, uh -huh. but it covered research in it. And I knew I wanted to do research. Yeah. So then I went out there and met him and the job was basically can you build a lab and spin my startup package? <laughs> and it was like, well, this sounds awesome. Yeah. Like I get to do a shore lab, a Thor lab shopping spree uh, and, and just like get all the stuff that I wish I had in a lab and, and kind of build it from scratch. So that was really exciting to me. So that's what I went and did. And it was sort of like a postdoc plus. Um, and I, when I first got there, I was, it was really just me and him. Like there were hardly even any students, mm -hmm. maybe one student. Uh, we slowly started having students show up. Uh, I, I was kind of training them how to do stuff in the lab with the lasers and the wind tunnel and everything. Um, I was buying a bunch of stuff, but then 
I, after I start training the students and the students get to the point where they can kind of be sustainable, I didn't have to be down there all the time. Mm-hmm. Then it started to be, well, hey, Chris, could you help write this proposal or could you, you know, come to these meetings or could you think you could teach a class about optics because uh, the students could really use that. And then before you know it, like by year three, I'm basically have the same responsibilities as a tenure track faculty and I'm never in the lab. Mm-hmm. Um, but I liked it and I didn't think that I would, but I ended up liking that a lot. Oh my gosh. Like managing projects and things like that. And so I kind of got like tricked into academia, I feel like, but um, yeah, it's worked out really well. And then, so I did that for a few years. That was not a tenure track job. Uh-huh. And, and uh, this opportunity opened up at UTSA to kind of build an aerodynamics program and build a lab. And it, that's kind of been a theme for me is like showing up places where I can sort of build something new has been really appealing. Oh my gosh. That's so, so interesting. I yeah. had a second opportunity to do that and took it. Right. That's an unusual career path. So tell us more about what you specifically do at your university. What are your responsibilities there? Uh, your um, many positions that you may have. What do you do right. specifically? Yeah, it's the number of titles has like gotten a little bit silly, but um, so I I run my hypersonics lab. That's mm-hmm. kind of uh, first and foremost. Uh, and so we built a Mach 7 wind tunnel here at UTSA, mm-hmm. which is pretty, there's only a handful of universities in the country that have that type of facility. So that's puts us in a small group. We've got I mean, like 16 grad students now and a bunch of undergrads that help out. So it's a big group. They stay busy. Yeah. We run the wind tunnel a lot. Uh, as you probably know, I'm like an administrator now. Like I'm hardly ever in the lab, which is, it is what it is. Right. Uh, but this, the students have ownership of that and they do a great job down there. Um, I am a the director of our aerospace engineering program, which, like I said, that's, I mean, it didn't, wasn't here five years ago, but now we've got certificates and a master's degree and we're working on getting the PhD program approved. Uh, we've got a handful of new faculty that we brought in and we've got another hire that's out. If anyone's listening, uh, apply to our uh, space faculty hire. We need somebody that can do satellites and stuff. Uh, and so I'm running that search. And then I'm the director of a NASA-funded center that we have called the Center for Advanced Measurements and Extreme Environments. And so that's an umbrella that holds a lot of different things in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I've got my hands on a lot. Uh, we're running in a bunch of different projects and a, a lot of different kind of administrative and organizational responsibilities. But it's fun. It's a place I feel like I can make an impact. And that's um, it's been fulfilling for sure. Interesting, man. I don't know anything about aerospace or satellites, but I love tacos. Can I apply for that position? Yeah, yeah, totally. All yeah. right. Is that a, a qualification enough? Uh, uh-huh, yeah, I think interested in tacos, that goes a long way. Right. Nice, nice. Uh, I'll be sending my CV to you directly and uh, I'm expecting an offer soon. Sounds good? Okay, great. All yeah. right. Wonderful, man. All right. Let's talk now about your NSF sponsor research. Um, let's talk about one of your NSF projects that is currently sponsored by the National Science Foundation, the Fluid Dynamics Program specifically, and that is the, the Career Award, right? Yes. Could you please tell us uh, objectives 
and some activities that you have for the let's begin with the title what's the title of your project you know i should know that off the top of my head i know right i know yeah it's long basically I, yeah i mean it's it's about um studying this kind of canonical problem of a of a transverse jet and a hypersonic cross flow and so what that means is if you imagine you've got a very high speed flow uh-huh going past the vehicle or whatever and then like at a 90 degree angle to that you're firing a jet for uh -huh. some reason or another um so like into the into the flow a little bit and that becomes really really complex and it's a thing that's difficult to model and it's a flow that's not particularly well understood mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of motivations for it so like the examples i like to give um the times that we would see this there's kind of two primary cases one on like an external uh, aerodynamic situation where if you have a high-speed vehicle and if it's flying in the atmosphere like kind of closer to the ground it's you can use flaps and fins probably to to control your vehicle just like you know most aircraft you see mm -hmm. um, use yep if you're way up out in space you've seen like videos of you know the dragging capsules and things and they do those little puffs of reaction control jet to move around and it's very newtonian physics right mm -hmm. there's no aerodynamic effects you have to worry about mm -hmm. um, but there's this weird space kind of in the middle where the air is thin in the upper atmosphere and it's thin to the point where a flap or a fin doesn't really do anything mm -hmm. um but if you try and use your RCS jet, suddenly you get this like big aerodynamic interaction that's generated. Interesting. Um, and that's kind of poorly understood. So um, that's, that's part of what we're looking at. The other time that it comes up is um, if you're looking at like a, uh, like a high speed engine, mm -hmm. And you're trying to mix fuel with the air that's coming in at very high speed mm -hmm. you might use some sort of jet in that engine um, to inject fuel and how that mixes is really important and again not super well understood so we are going to look at that type of kind of canonical flow field interaction mm -hmm. provide measurements that haven't been made before um, at high Mach numbers and uh and yeah go from there see what kind of fun results we can get i see is there an expected outcome that you're envisioning for this project yeah i mean we hope that we get some sort of more foundational understanding of what happens right um, with this jet like there's a couple different things we're trying to look at one is the jet it actually um it behaves, it creates a very similar set of flow physics as if you just had like, say a standing cylinder in the flow, mm -hmm. uh, it's basically an obstruction. And so seeing how that compares to a cylinder and can we use a cylinder to simplify the problem and just use that to model instead of like an actual jet, yep. um, like are the dynamics the same? But then, so that's one thing we wanna look at. We wanna understand how the incoming boundary layer state changes that interaction. Mm -hmm. And we've got some understanding of how that works for 
solid objects, but is it different for a jet? Is there different coupling that happens with the fluid? Um, that's something we want to see. And then um, also there's, there's not really much data on the transient dynamics of the jet, whether it's during the startup process, like you turn when you turn the jet on, mm -hmm. uh, what that looks like. And then also there's unsteadiness inherent even during the steady state operation. Right. Um, and there, because of the challenges of making measurements at such high speed, there's not really any results on the, that are like time resolved mm -hmm. of these types of flows, but that's something that we can do now. Um, so we're, we're going to be looking at that also. All right. So let me take you now with this direction that you were mentioning how to do it. How are you actually going to do it? What are the methods uh, that you are going to apply in this project? So a, big, a big thing that we do in our lab is we develop a lot of measurement techniques um, that are with sort of state-of-the-art, what we call non-intrusive optical diagnostics. And so a lot of measurements that you make in high-speed flows traditionally have been probe-based. Mm -hmm. You know, you have a pressure transducer or something and you have to put it somewhere, mm -hmm. right? You have to attach it to a probe, but that's intrusive. And you're either limited to like a point in the flow where you can move your probe around, um, or you've mm -hmm. got something that you have to put on a surface and you're limited to a surface measurement. So what we work on is, uh, you know, how do, how do you use light and optics to non-intrusively make these measurements off body mm -hmm. um, and really understand large portions of the flow field all at once and visualize things? Um, and, and you can actually quantify those measurements. So it takes a um, really high-powered, high-speed laser. So we have a pulse burst laser that can go megahertz rate um, at high power. We have high-speed cameras. Uh, that that can image uh, different types of things. And so you can manipulate the the laser light and optics and uh, and different things to measure really any quantity of interest that you want, depending on the complexity that you're up for. Uh, and so we're we're coming at it with that approach. To, and what we're really gonna want to try and do is get what I call four-dimensional measurements mm -hmm. of this jet, mm -hmm. uh, where it's actually a three-dimensional volume that you can render. Um, of part of your flow that is time resolved. And that just, that has never been done for a hypersonic flow. That's what we're going to try and do. Man, that sounds really fancy. And how did you come up with this idea? Is it something that you were studying for a while? Is it something that it's, uh, it's just interesting to you? It's something driven by technology development? What so when I was a grad student, I got uh, one of the things I did with NASA. This wasn't the primary topic of my dissertation, but um, I uh, helped out with some experiments where we were looking at the Orion capsule reaction control jets at high speed. And they had some work they did kind of early, like mid to late aughts mm -hmm. in 2010s. Uh, trying to understand that because uh there's really some they've had two problems with some nasa missions using the reaction control jets on re-entry one is that the aerodynamic interaction is so intense that sometimes you get the opposite control moment that you intended mm -hmm. like the kind of common sense tells you you fire a jet one direction and newtonian mechanics tells you you fire a jet one direction it's like the equal and opposite reaction right yeah so you should move the other way um the depending on the circumstances and where and how you fire the jet and what the flow is doing 
you can fire a jet and actually move in that direction. Um, and so you get like the opposite force that you tried to impart. Hmm. That's really bad in like a reentry environment when you're trying to control a vehicle. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it's not particularly well understood. It takes really good models to figure that out. Yeah. So there's been some missions where they simply did not use reaction control jets during reentry because they didn't trust what direction that was going to move. Um, so that was a known issue. And then also they found that when they fired these jets, it created a bunch of heating around the jet that actually was off nominal condition. Um, and so they were kind of afraid to use the jets because of the heating that was imparted. Mm -hmm. um, so we were looking into that and then it sort of continued to come up uh, in the world of hypersonics. And like, there's been all this stuff going on in hypersonics and a bunch of people talking about um, whether it's fuel injection or control of a vehicle, uh, it has remained sort of an issue. And I realized that just like, it's not something that's been well characterized. And we had all these diagnostic tools that could be used to sort of interrogate the fluid Mm -hmm. in a way that hasn't been done um so it's it's something that i kind of like got to play with a little bit as a grad student but it never really got addressed in my opinion and so i wanted to dive back in interesting and also in nsf projects uh, uh, well maybe the listeners don't know but we um uh, as faculty now we as pis now there is a component in broader impacts activities right what are you going to do in terms of broader impacts in this project yeah so i'm going to get on my soapbox a little bit Okay. There's one. So one thing I tell people when they ask about the impact of my work yeah. it is, and I think faculty forget this a lot is at the end of the day, we're educators. Yeah. Um, and the, I think the biggest product that I'm going to have from and deliverable from all of my research in my career, it's not going to be some invention or discovery or like breakthrough and fluids. It's going to be all the people that we train. Uh, so the students and the workforce, that's the number one thing. Like mm -hmm. we, there are people that are learning how to use a wind tunnel. They're learning how to do diagnostics. They're, they're learning how to do the analysis yep. that we're putting in the workforce. That's the number one thing. Um, there's the, uh, another thing. So here's one that a lot of NSF reviewers don't like mm -hmm. is if you look on the NSF broader impacts page, one of the impacts is defense. And that's, I think a misunderstood point. Mm -hmm. And a defense application is that serves the national interest. That's part of what NSF is about. And so that's an appropriate broader impact. Mm -hmm. This does have defense applications. Um, I think there's a segment of reviewers that do not agree with that, but it's on the NSF guidelines. Mm -hmm. So they're like, there's potential impact to the DOD um, and to NASA. And then, but we're going to do some other things too. Like, I, so I've got a pretty active Twitter, if you don't know. Um, any listeners follow me at Dr. Chris Holmes like to have fun on there. We're probably going to do like a competition that I'm going to announce later. Um, I put some fun stuff in the proposal that we're going to do some, uh, have some fun on Twitter and we're developing a class. Uh, I, I'm going to teach hypersonics in the spring, which I haven't done yet. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we're going to develop an optics course too, um, that I haven't taught in a really long time. Not since I was in Tennessee. Um, and we've got this, uh, we, we've got a Alamo College's university program here. It's kind of like two-year degree type stuff here in San Antonio. And it's a really neat group, group of students. And we've got internship programs set up with them. And so we're going to bring students in over the summer 
uh, from Alamo colleges. And a lot of them end up transferring into UTSA after they have a good experience here. Um, so we're going to we're going to work with those students, too, and, uh, you know, get them looped into the lab and get them trained up. Right. Oh, my gosh. That's uh, an interesting perspective that, that you have right there. Uh, we are educators, right, in, in the end. Right. After all is done, all the research, all the papers are published. In the end, we're educators. I love that perspective. And uh, it's a valid point for broader impact activities, all the impact in uh, national security. So this may be silly, but do you consider that this is directly impacting the taxpayer? This yeah, research? I mean, yeah. like I said, first and foremost, they're getting a bargain for the training of the student. Yes. Um, and I think if we can understand the foundations and, and fundamentals of this type of fluid flow, mm -hmm. um, it is, it's, it's going to impact how we design aircraft and space vehicles mm -hmm. and it can improve engine efficiency for high-speed engines. Um, so it's the, the thing that people have to be reminded of you know, when you talk about the taxpayer thing with NSF research, it's like this is this is the most basic research. It's the most foundational. It's mm -hmm. kind of the bottom of the pyramid, the yep. six one stuff. Um, this is the long range, long lead time payoff where it's not I, I don't like to say that NSF is like just science for the sake of science. Right. Because you do have impacts, um, but it is you sometimes you never know where that's going to go and what it's going to lead to. And you address a problem that's important um, that has potential applications. Um, but any research project tends to go a different direction than what you initially planned. Right. Uh, so the, the more that we learn, the more that we understand, and especially a problem like this, which is a jet and cross flow that has a bunch of different potential applications. Mm -hmm. uh, the more that we learn about this, the better off we're going to be in, in vehicle design and engine design. So that's the contribution that we're hoping to make. Right. So would you consider that technology development is driving this project or science for the sake of just uh, creating new knowledge is driving this project? I mean, I would say it is technology development. Right. Yeah. Like because there's a need for this. And yes. it's been if you go and look around, there are a bunch of agencies that have mm -hmm. been asking for jet and cross flow. Yeah. Uh, across the government right and so we kind of wanted to address that need but on a very foundational non-applied level mm -hmm. uh, so we are we're looking at this from a very basic canonical perspective right we kind of down the geometry uh we weren't going to put this on like a nasa shape right because mm -hmm. then it's probably too applied for what we're trying to do so we're trying to make this as broad and general as possible and provide data that the computational community can use for validation because mm -hmm. what when you can really start to move the needle on vehicle design is when you, you make the models better and then you can crank through, a, you know, a, a test case way faster than we ever can in a wind tunnel. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was bringing this point in the last episode with Xiang and um, yeah, we have this brief discussion about the uh, technology driving science or, sci or, or science driving technology. And you can look at it from different point of, points of view. And uh, it's not uh, black and white saying that, some say that technology shouldn't be driving science because science is inherited to the human experience of living. So we are always looking for answers to questions, right? Uh -huh. And then having technology 
moving the needle in the development of science shouldn't be the way to go. But hey, we need to satisfy certain needs in a country. We need to uh, live in the real life. There's defense uh, needs. There is uh, travel uh, needs that must be satisfied. So yeah, last time I think we were more uh, advocate because our project is more science-based. We were we were more advocating for that. But you make a really good point in uh, that technology driving science is not really a bad thing. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, I'm an engineer. We're yeah. here to solve problems. Yes, right? yes. There's a need. There's a need for just the science that answers a question that we don't have the answer to. Yes. But I at least I I'm still answering questions but mm -hmm. there's questions that are arising because there's something we're trying to do that we can't do yet exactly exactly so that's a different way of uh, looking at this cool man very good so how will you disseminate your research uh, outcomes from this project um what's your plan i mean of course we're going to publish we're going to present this stuff in papers uh -huh. we've already our student has already been doing like internal um you know, presentation competitions and stuff. He actually won first place already. He's nice. barely got any data yet, but he he got like 300 bucks from our department um, the other day. So that was exciting. Yeah. And uh, so like, he's really on top of stuff, but yeah, we're going to, you know, do all the traditional type academic stuff and publishing and things. But mm -hmm. uh, like I said, I, I put a lot of things on Twitter. We'll mm -hmm. be getting it out that way too. And so we're looking forward to sharing some of the exciting stuff and the best eye candy that we have. Mm -hmm. online um once it's in that that format right right so twitter so do you think that in order to reach the general population do we need to go in different routes not so much the uh traditional publication traditional conference should we go out to social networks and those kinds of apps i mean if you want people to see it right yeah. <laughs> like if you want more than I mean, because I, you know, sometimes, and this is part of what I'm, I'm getting at with like the training, yeah. right? The, the workforce impact. I think sometimes as academics, we get way too, um, we get a little bit removed from reality and thinking about the impact that like a journal paper that we have yes. will actually make. Yes. Because it, I mean, I worked really hard on my dissertation. I'm really proud of that document, but I bet like 10 people have read it. Okay. Um, That's too many. And, and there's, there's like the we've got journal papers that come out and maybe a hundred people will read one of those. That would, I, that would make me feel great. If I knew a hundred people had read a journal paper that I wrote. Right. All right. Um, and maybe someday, you know, maybe it gets some citations and it impacts some other research and drives some things. Right. But if, you know, if I create a uh, graduated student, and they go off and they put time into industry. They're doing testing. They're creating value. Like they're actually doing things that I think that makes a way bigger impact than like a certain paper. And, and then also on Twitter, like I can, it's not that big of a stretch to, to post something on Twitter and hundreds of thousands of people will see it. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, so you are, getting at a much much larger audience mm -hmm. and if you put things in the right perspective and communicate it in a way that people you know will actually understand it and relate to it mm -hmm. then 
then yeah, like you can you can do a lot more with a Twitter post than a journal food mechanics article. Right, right. I agree. Especially to reach out the general population that are there on Twitter, social uh, media and stuff. And actually, I, in one of my projects, I wanted to do that. I never got funding to actually do it. And when you have funding, it's easier <laughs> to actually get yeah. things done. Uh, but no, you're right. I had this whole idea of creating a new persona for the researcher as the streamer, as the social media figure, not so much into getting out there and, hey, look at me. And But look at the research that we're doing. Look at the training that we're giving to students. Look at the outcome from our research in the classroom. You know, uh, something that people can really see in short bites. It doesn't have to be a 20-minute, one-hour podcast episode, right? It has to be something brief. But uh, yeah, we need to... Um, think outside of the box, come up with different ideas. Uh, uh, people listening can come to Fluid Conversations, have a conversation with me uh, and talk about science, talk about who they are, how you're doing, how you're doing your research and how everything works in academia, especially so everybody get to know uh, how this actually works. All right, Chris, before we wrap it up, do you have any uh, last comments? Um, no, just thanks for having me. This was fun. It was great catching up. All right, man. Thank you so much. And everybody, uh, stay tuned. And the next episode will come up, uh, come out, uh, I don't know, at some point next month. You know, I I'm also doing research and uh, teaching classes and stuff. So just wait. All right. Thank you so much, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> Goodbye. All right. Great talking to you, Vladimir. Thank you so much for joining us. This is the end of our episode. Before we go, I must say that none of the opinions expressed here reflect those of the National Science Foundation. The objective of this podcast is to create public awareness of research and to increase public outreach. The next episode will drop next month. At some point, I'm not sure when, but I promise that it'll happen. 